0: Where are these missing pages, this map? We must have these pages back. This one's got pages missing.
1: Why are the pages missing? Like a book with missing pages. Something that I want to make clear as I make my way through history and continue this podcast, especially very early on, is the number of colonies that were involved during this period. It is very easy to overlook some colonies that are less involved in the large-scale migration, wars, and general events. We are eventually going to get to the 13 colonies at the revolution. So far, we have discussed Virginia, Plymouth, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. I have also mentioned New Haven and Connecticut in passing, though i will I'll circle back to those ones, but bringing all of these together amounts to four of the thirteen English colonies at the Revolution. We have a ways to go before we have all of the main players set for that story coming in a couple seasons, but that's just talking about England itself outside of England. We have also discussed the Spanish missions in the Southwest and Mexico and the colony of La Florida. I have not even touched France much at all nor the country involved in this episode, the Netherlands. Like Spain and France, along with those colonies outside of the main three, Virginia, Plymouth, and Massachusetts, New Netherland, the colony that I will be discussing in this episode, is mentioned, but the detail is hardly satisfactory. So this episode and the next will be used to flesh out those extra colonies that are often left by the wayside. In the AP notes, this section is titled New York and New Jersey, and it states, By the early 1600s, the Dutch of Holland had established themselves as the most aggressive traders in Europe. What are two major reasons why the Dutch West India Company established a colony in the area of present-day New York, known as New Netherland? And those two points are, it was set up to be a fur trade, and the area seemed to be an excellent base to attack Spain's colonies in the New World. In 1655, New Netherland, under the leader of Peter Stuyvesant, the man with the wooden leg, took over what small neighboring colony? My answer is New Sweden, which had a major contribution to American culture and log cabins. Continuing, one major group in New Netherland was the Patroons. Who were they? They were landlords that controlled huge plots of land along the Hudson River, with many tenants on them, and had a great deal of power the Dutch contributed much to American culture, including names such as Wall Street and Broadway, words like Boss, Cookie, Snoop, and legends like Santa Claus and Rip Van Winkle. Continuing on, New Netherland's population remained quite small, numbering only 270 in 1628, and never developed a strong government while under Dutch control. What happened in August 1664 concerning New Netherland? The answer is, Great Britain took over New Netherland from the Dutch after an easy victory. After the English conquered New Netherland, King Charles gave the land to his brother James, the Duke of York, and it was renamed New York. Some of this land eventually became New Jersey. Both New York and New Jersey were proprietary colonies. And then finally, it states, New York and New Jersey tended to attract many different settlers from a wide variety of places, including New England and almost every European nation. What might be some reasons why they attracted a wider variety of settlers than did New England or the Chesapeake? My answers are that it was centrally located and easy to access, there was relative religious tolerance, and people looked to get rich from the fur trade. So that's it. That is all of the mention of New Netherland. So come with me, grab your bouquet of tulips, and let's fill in those missing pages. The story starts in London, yet again, in 1607, with Henry Hudson bursting on the scene on his way to start his first journey. He was hungry to go on a voyage, like those before him Christopher Columbus, John Cabot, and Francis Drake. Not much is known about Hudson's early life, other than he was a sailor for much of it, likely as an apprentice with the Muscovy Company, and was involved in the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. The Muscovy Company was the company that actually funded his first mission, and this mission was to find a northern route past Russia to China. He failed spectacularly. Hudson attempted to go straight north, through the Arctic Circle, to complete the voyage. In doing so, he was testing a theory that we now know is preposterous. He didn't know that there was ice up there. A whole lot of ice. His second mission was to follow in the footsteps of another explorer, Richard Chancellor, who had been hired by the Muscovy Company in 1553 to find a route northeast through the North Sea to China. Now, he ran into Russia first, sparking decades of trade between Russia and England. Hudson attempted to follow the same path that Chancellor did but he also failed. There is no path from England to China via the northeast. So he decided he would start looking northwest. Hudson began receiving letters in 1608 from a fellow explorer, John Smith, who had made landfall in Virginia the year before. Maps were exchanged, and a new route was taking shape. Unfortunately for Hudson, his work for the Muscovy Company had not given them much trust to give him more funding, so he found it elsewhere in Amsterdam. Hudson was hired by the Dutch East India Company to lead a mission to find the Northeast Passage to Asia, the same one that he was trying to find for the Muscovy Company. But shortly after launching, in late spring of 1609, Hudson convinced his crew to change course completely and travel northwest. They traveled across the Atlantic using John Smith's maps for guidance and approached the New World near Newfoundland. From there, he traveled south to reach Virginia, though he avoided landing in the English settlement on a Dutch ship. See, the Dutch and the English had a very tumultuous relationship. A lot of that came from the fact that the Dutch were under the control of Spain for many decades, though at this point they were attempting to become independent. But the Dutch, like the English, were late to the colonial party, and were trying to catch up with Spain and Portugal. From Virginia, Hudson turned the ship back around, and he and his crew sailed north up the coast until they reached a land that was outside of their imagination. They saw a massive harbor, deep, wide rivers, high cliffs, and people abound on the coast. In his book, The Island at the Center of the World, Russell Shorto describes this moment of finding this new land. they were aware that they were shouldering a new world, impossibly dark, utterly unknown, of imponderable dimension, and with no clear means of access. And then they felt something happening. Rounding a hooked point, they were startled at what they perceived to be three rivers. They were in the outer reaches of New York Harbor, riding along the coast of Staten Island. Fish streamed thickly around them, salmon, mullet, wraith-like rays. They anchored and went ashore marveling at primordial oaks and, quote, and this is quoting George Weymouth, one of those people on board the ship, an abundance of blue plums, end quote. Shorter continues, Then, just like that, people appeared. They came at them frankly, dressed in skins, peaceable, and with an air of dignity, offering cornbread and green tobacco. Out came the products. Hemp, dried currants, oysters, beans, knives, hatchets, and beads— Over the next three days, as the ship explored an intricate mesh of islands, bays, and rivers, making the rounds of Brooklyn, Staten Island, and coastal New Jersey, there would be two violent encounters with the Indians. People died. It's ironic that immediately upon entering the watery perimeter of what would become New York City, these two things took place, trade and violence. Now, these rivers that he saw, these three rivers that he mentions, Hudson thought that those were the rivers to Asia the mythical Northwest Passage. He sailed up these rivers, but realized that this was not that mythical passage. He had failed. He was prepared to try again shortly after returning to England, after leaving his crew in Amsterdam. He gained funding from three aristocrats and started his journey northwest again. They sailed farther north than where they landed last time, but unfortunately for Hudson, his crew was not as ambitious as him, and during this travel, mutinied in the frozen waters of what is today Hudson Bay. He was loaded onto a small boat, along with his son and several sick crewmen, and set adrift. The mutinied crew made it back to England, where they were found guilty of mutiny and murder, but exonerated due to their supposed knowledge of the path to Asia. Henry died in that boat, perhaps after seeing both his dream and his son die in the cold. He made it into history, though, just as he had wanted. As stated by Vampire Weekend, Hudson died in Hudson Bay, and the water took its victim's name. All of this work and sacrifice by Hudson wasn't really going anywhere, though. In 1609, there wasn't much interest to move, even to this wonderful new place that they found, this new harbor, because there was a truce between the Netherlands and Spain. though. The end of that truce in 1621 brought new life to this movement. There was reason for trade in the New World, and also a reason to attack Spanish holdings. Over the next few years, it became apparent to the Dutch government how vital this bay could be to their trading efforts. This prompted the creation of the Dutch West India Company, which had guarded about 50 ships by 1626. It was still difficult to get many to leave the comfort of home, though, so the government began offering plots of land for six years of service, much like what was done in Virginia. The government also ensured that there was an equal number of men and women in order to promote population growth, very different from Virginia. The beginnings were quite slow. Just a few dozen couples made their way to the newly coined New Netherland, and from there spread along the three rivers in the region. Though the journey was daunting and their comforts were stripped, there weren't many complaints from the settlers. One of these settlers wrote, We were much gratified on arriving in this country. Here we found beautiful rivers, bubbling fountains flowing down into the valleys, basins of running water in the flatlands, agreeable fruits in the woods, such as strawberries, pigeon berries, and walnuts, and also wild grapes. The woods abound with acorns for feeding hogs and with venison. There is considerable fish in the rivers, good tillage land. Here is especially free coming and going, without fear of the naked natives of the country. Had we cows, hogs, and other cattle fit for food, which we daily expect in the first ships, we would not wish to return to Holland, for whatever we desire in the paradise of Holland is here to be found. Quote. The main island was named after the Delaware word for hilly island, Manahatta, though now we know that island as Manhattan. There was extensive trade with the Indians nearly immediately, mainly for beaver pelts. Many of the settlers began to work at a more permanent settlement on Nut Island in order to protect this trade. Some other settlers moved upriver and founded a small settlement called Fort Orange near what is now today Albany. It is not easy going from the beginning, though. They found themselves in the midst of a territorial battle between the Mohicans and the Mohawk. During this conflict, the Dutch grew closer to the Mohicans and vice versa. Though there were clear instructions to stay out of Indian relations, the commander of the fort, Daniel von Kriekenbeek, was drawn into direct battle with the Mohawks. He and 27 others were killed, including the Mohican leader, Monamin. The director of the colony, Willem Verholst, was also breaking protocol. He was cheating the Indians in his dealings with them. The company gave Verholst very clear instructions. Shorto explains them here, The West India Company had sent Verholst explicit instructions on dealing with the Indians, Quote, this is quoting the company's contract, He shall also see that no one do the Indians any harm or violence, deceive, mock, or contemn them in any way, but that in addition to good treatment they be shown honesty, faithfulness, and sincerity in all contracts, dealings, and intercourse, without being deceived by shortage of measure, weight, or number, and that throughout friendly relations with them be maintained." End quote. This, on top of him being an arbitrary authoritarian, led to major discontent, and eventually he was replaced by Peter Minuit. Peter Minuit grew up in Wesel, Germany, which bordered the Netherlands. He was a bright businessman that thought only of his own success. When he came, most of the settlers were stationed on what is now called Nut Island, but he realized that to be successful, they had to leave, and so he decided to move the colony to the island across the channel, Manahatta. Now the legend goes that Minui bought this island from the Indians for about 60 guilder, or about $24. It is much more complex than that, though, and much of the detail is lost to history. The natives, as we have come to understand, weren't primitive, unsophisticated, or defenseless. They were every bit as conniving and smart as the new settlers. The idea of land ownership was very different to the Indians than the Dutch. The Dutch merely had a usage requirement. This deal that was made, the 60 guilder deal, was likely more of a rental agreement than a purchase. This agreement came with it trade and protection from other tribes. It is also likely that the Indians were able to use the land as they had previously with the Dutch there. They had hunted and fished and traded just as they had done before. Upon moving to this new island and placing the settlement at the south tip, we named this new place New Amsterdam. And here in the southern tip of this island was built a small fort, and this fort is located at the footprint of the current Customs House in New York City. 30 houses were built over the next two years to house over 200 settlers. This new island harbored much more potential than the previous. It was much more diverse, and there was a sort of highway that was already cut through the land that was a major trade highway. This road runs, at least partially, where Broadway runs today. The decision to move the colony proved to be smart, and many people from all across the world began to move to Manhattan. This included legitimate and illegitimate business partners and brought with it a much more chaotic environment. But it also brought capital, and we felt that they were making strong headway in America. He began to correspond with William Bradford and saw that they were in a much stronger position than the English settlers. The new settlement drew people of all stripes, to build a new life and hopefully business there. the settlement was a far cry from the monocultures of Massachusetts and Plymouth. Many legitimate businessmen, as well as pirates and smugglers, made their way to the colony and it became much more raucous and lively as time went on. There was a small ad hoc government that met every week, though they had very little authority. Many people saw this new town as lawless and chaos began to mount. The colony was still not turning a profit, though, and the Dutch government wanted something tangible to be extracted. So they suggested that patroons, wealthy estates, be sent to the colony for assistance. This was debated by the council, and Minuit was summoned to discuss this issue. Just as Minoui had gotten the colony to a much more steady state, he was being pulled away before he could see the fruits of his labor give him any returns. On the voyage back just before reaching Amsterdam, a great storm blew the ship towards England where they made an emergency landing, and Minuit was arrested by King Charles I. He was now stuck in an international dispute between England and the Netherlands regarding the status of the colony he had built. To make matters worse, Minuit was dismissed as governor. He would use this time to build a plan for revenge. After Minuit's departure, Wouter van Twiller was chosen as his replacement. Van Twiller was a drunk, and a poor leader that was chosen purely due to his familial relation to the company. Under his leadership, English sailors traded openly within the valley, piracy and prostitution ran rampant, and the local slave trade expanded. He did attempt to thwart the English in Connecticut by building a fort on the Connecticut River, but his faults outweighed his virtues. Under him, punishments for all crimes were inconsistent and seemingly arbitrary. He acted on whims rather than law. The difference between this colony and the English colony nearby to the north became more and more stark. Despite the differences, the English knew the value of the land, as well as the colony's weaknesses, and began to encroach. It wasn't only the English that saw this weakness as an opportunity, though. Killian van Rensselaer, a Dutch diamond merchant, purchased the land surrounding Fort Orange. Peterman Wee also made his triumphal return, but this time under the flag of Gustavus Adolphus, The Swedish king. He formed the colony of New Sweden, south of New Amsterdam, in Delaware today. The colony was now in dire straits, and it would require a miracle to return from the brink. In 1638, Willem Kieft was chosen to replace Van Twiller to try to be this miracle. Now, Willem Kieft was born in Amsterdam to wealthy and influential parents, though he did not reach much success in his early career. He attempted to build businesses in France but failed, but was somehow able to find his way to New Netherland to become the new governor. Now Kieft ruled with an iron fist, and was also arbitrary in his punishment, usually charging company employees less than other citizens. He tried to portray himself as fair by forming a council, though it was a farce. Kieft had two votes, and the other member, Johannes Lamontagne, had one. Kieft was not fit to run this colony successfully, and it became more obvious when New Amsterdam became a free trading zone, bringing piracy and other crime with it. It also brought with it currency from around the world, but the main one it used was actually wampum, strings of shells. It became so prominent that strings of low-grade shells were created and used for trade, thus lowering the value of wampum entirely. Keefe decided that he needed to put an end to this, though, and he wanted to ensure a stable currency and he also decided to tax any Indians living on Dutch land, again, land that the Indians thought was being rented by the Dutch. Over time, the external threats began to weigh heavy on Kieft. He attempted to threaten New Sweden and Peter Minuit, though with no success. Minuit would die early on during a trading expedition in the Caribbean, so New Netherland was safe from any threats from them. And due to internal issues, namely making profits for the Dutch West India Company, he did not attack New Sweden. Though, England still did remain, but he decided against attacking them for similar reasons. He did attack someone else, though. Kieft had an exceptional hatred for the natives. Unlike others that merely tolerated their presence on their land that they thought was being rented, Kieft wanted them eradicated, even though they were a key trade partner to the colony. Most long-time residents knew that this would be a disaster. Despite the warnings, Kieft was undeterred. Kieft attacked many tribes unprompted, and in retaliation, many of the local tribes, like the Raritans, destroyed Dutch farms. Kieft then tried to pit rival tribes against one another to deal with this problem. This worked for a time, but it would not last. After seeing his whole tribe burn in 1626, a Wigweskit Indian took his revenge on a Dutchman, Kleis Switz, or Sfitz an old wheelwright well known to most. With this murder, Kieft wanted war. He called a council of 12 prominent members of New Amsterdam. They agreed that the killer should be punished, but there should be no war. Beyond that, the council was attempting to become a permanent fixture, despite the wishes of Kieft. Annoyed, Kieft took the matters into his own hands and began what is called Kieft's War. On February 23rd, 1643, Kieft led troops to a surprise attack on the nearby Wigweskit, and Tappan tribes. The slaughter could be seen from the fort in New Amsterdam, and the scene was described in detail by David de Vries in The Island at the Center of the World. Quote, I heard a great shrieking, and I ran to the ramparts of the fort and looked over to Bavonia, saw nothing but firing, and heard the shrieks of the natives murdered in their sleep. Shorto continues, Shortly after, an Indian couple, whom de Vries knew, appeared inexplicably inside the fort. They had managed to flee the massacre, which in the confusion they thought was being done by Mohawks. De Vries told them it was Dutchmen that were annihilating their makeshift village, and that Fort Amsterdam was the last place they should come for refuge. He helped them escape into the woods. In the morning, De Vries heard the returned soldiers boasting that they had, quote, massacred or murdered 80 Indians, and considering they had done a deed of Roman valor in murdering so many in their sleep, end quote. A pamphlet was written shortly thereafter describing the events to so discontent with Kieft. After this war, the relations with the Indians was now worse than it had ever been, and they were now allied against all Europeans, and the entire colony was now on edge. And this attack led to massive campaigns by the local native tribes to get revenge, and even led to the creation of confederations between previously rivaled tribes. What followed was a retaliatory campaign from the natives against New Amsterdam. In one of these attacks, the Siwenoi, another tribe, attacked all of the houses that had settled near them, including the house of the Hutchinsons. And in mid-July, after not heeding the warnings of her neighbors, all but one of the Hutchinsons, living in this house, were killed and scalped, nine-year-old Susan being the only survivor. As a last-ditch effort to save his skin and and make the company some money, Kieft proposed new taxes, but that just made matters worse. He had gone much too far. Opposition was strong and petitions were sent to The Hague for his removal. These were written by Cornelius Mellon, Jakob Keiter, and a newcomer, Adrian Vanderdonck. der Donk. Adrian van der Donk was born in Breda, in the Netherlands in 1618. His family was well-connected, and he began his schooling in 1638 at the University of Leiden at the age of 20. The city of Leiden was a refuge for all of those escaping prosecution in their home country. This included the pilgrims, Huguenots, Baptists, and Ashkenazi Jews. This was also a hub for many scientists and writers. In all, it was a very tolerant and welcoming city. Vanderdonck was being educated during one of the most prolific periods regarding political philosophy in the Netherlands. He was starting school just a couple of years after Descartes stated, I think, therefore I am. The most direct influence that Vanderdonk had was Hugo Grotius. Grotius is considered the father of international law. He created the principle of international waters and the idea of war justification, or casus belli. In doing so, Grotius changed the entire way law was taught in Leiden. The idea of natural law, the idea that reason should be used to determine right and wrong rather than religion, Began to gain ground. And this movement would later be used as the grounds for the Enlightenment. Now, Vanderdonk graduated as a jurist, a lawyer, in 1641, during a period of opulence and safety in Holland. Despite this, Vanderdonk was ready to make a name for himself and create something on his own. And he saw the greatest chance for this in the New World. So he found work to do so. And he was quickly hired by Killian van Rensselaer, a rich landowner that that created a small colony north of New Amsterdam. He was hired as a shout or shoot, effectively the sheriff and prosecutor. He arrived a few months later in New Amsterdam during a transition period that we talked about. He met the new director Willem Kieft and made his way northwards to Rensselaerswyck, that colony that Killian van Rensselaer started. He was one of about a hundred settlers in the town and likely the only one formally educated. Here he found a small dwelling and began his work. While Vanderdonk's primary job was a lawman, he began to be used as a sort of planner to help the colony start turning a profit. He was given plans by Van Rensselaer to carry out in the colony itself. See, Van Rensselaer had not actually come to the colony, he was just financing the thing. Vanderdonk did not see this expansion of his responsibilities as a bad thing. As time went on, he began falling more and more in love with the idea of America. Though he never really felt disconnected from the Netherlands. Much to the chagrin of his sponsor, he began to take matters into his own hands. He began to explore outside of the Dutch territory, mainly fraternizing with the Mohawk and Mohicans, and the effects of Keefe's war had not reached this far north yet, so these tribes were still actively trading with the settlers in Rensselaerswyck. He learned about their languages and cultures, marking many similarities and differences between theirs and the Dutch. He doubted the likelihood of ever converting the Indians, though, due to their strong religious traditions, though he thought it might be possible over many generations. And from this experience, Vanderdonck wrote a description of New Netherland, which describes the colony, the surrounding area, and the natives that lived there. He even tried to compare and contrast the legal traditions of the natives. He inquired about how the Europeans should interact with the natives, and he discussed the ideas of land ownership that the natives had, and their ideas of governance. He was able to, just like many others, paint the natives as not savages, but a fully developed people. They were different from Europeans, but not in as many ways as first thought. All this gallivanting was not approved by van Rensselaer, though, and he relieved van der after seeing his insubordination. Van der saw a chance to build his own colony, but was outmaneuvered, thus, he was forced to move south, to New Amsterdam. In New Amsterdam, he immediately got to work, His presence in the record is noted for its incredibly legalistic language, something which no one before him could have easily done, as they were likely not educated. He wrote petition after petition against the actions of Kieft. This culminated in the creation, with the help of Jakob Keiter and Cornelius Mellon, of a petition to The Hague to oust Kieft from his seat as director. This was ultimately successful, leading to the replacement of Kieft by Peter Stuyvesant in 1647. So let's introduce Mr. Peter Stuyvesant. He was the son of a Calvinist minister from the northern reaches of the Netherlands. He did not follow his father's path and instead made his way to Amsterdam to work for the Dutch West India Company. He worked as a low-level administrator and was eventually sent to the New World to work on several outposts in Central America and the Caribbean. He slowly advanced up the ranks in the company and made somewhat of a name for himself, and he was privy to the growing colony in the north called New Netherland, but he was much more focused about his place in the New World trade sphere. See, the Netherlands, as I've stated, was in the middle of fighting for its independence against Spain in what is now known as the Eighty Years' War. Stuyvesant was a major cog in the war machine in the Caribbean front. Famously, he lost his leg in an attack on St. Martin while assaulting the Spanish fort. He miraculously survived, though now with a peg leg, and he continued to work in the Caribbean managing salt production despite a festering leg stump. He succeeded in fighting off the English, Spanish, and French ships that also lurked in the area, and even took some of those Spanish outposts for the Dutch. His leg eventually became too much to handle in this harsh climate, though, so he returned to the Netherlands to heal. He lived in Breda and fell in love and married Judith Bayard and after his leg finally healed, he returned to work. He was read into the issues that were plaguing New Amsterdam and the failures of Willem Kieft, and was chosen to replace him and set the colony straight. Thus, on May 11, 1647, to the surprise of Willem Kieft, who had been working to improve his status, he took over as governor of New Amsterdam. Now, if we remember back to last the last few episodes, as a short reminder, the decade before Stuyvesant arrived a little bit before then even, came wave after wave of English settlers, mostly arriving in Massachusetts and Plymouth. Now, it was around this time that that settlement began to slow dramatically due to the fact that the first civil war was over and the Puritans had won. Despite this, Massachusetts and Plymouth were gaining ground southward towards New Amsterdam, so Stuyvesant wasted no time to start his duties he was ready to rectify the wrongs of the previous administration. The effect was almost immediate. His first line of action was to regain some order in the administration, and he held daily meetings and had his secretary, he kept Keefe's secretary, write numerous documents to relay to the public. Stuyvesant was harsh in his punishments, but his justice was blind. He put the colony back on track, but a new movement began to form, a movement toward liberty. Though in order to get justice for Keefe's war, Stuyvesant called Cornelius Mellon and Joachim Keiter, those two writers that worked alongside Vanderdonk, to stand trial and testify against Kieft and fully understand what went wrong in that war. Despite this, Stuyvesant thought that letter was treasonous, the letter that they wrote to the Hague, but felt that this needed to be addressed before they were sent back. Vanderdonk acted as the prosecutor during this trial and wrote arguments against Kieft, and Van Tienhoven, the secretary I mentioned earlier. He also advanced the ideals of self-determination and democratic government, which Stuyvesant rejected wholeheartedly. And Stuyvesant even went so far as to prove his point when he used Van Tienhoven to form an argument for Mellon and Keiter's removal from the colony on the grounds that they actively attacked the governor's authority. He was successful, and these two were sent back to Amsterdam on the same ship as Willem Kieft. Now on this trip back to Amsterdam, the ship actually crashed off the coast of Wales, killing Kieft, but sparing Mellon and Keiter. They slowly made their way to London over the course of a few weeks, and after months of waiting, they finally made their way back to the Netherlands. And while in Amsterdam, the duo held meeting after meeting, attempting to get their sentence lifted and spread the ideals of government that they wanted to install in New Netherland. Now with Kieft gone and the internal strife that we saw with Mellon and Kiter, settled, Stuyvesant was ready to tackle this outside threat from England. He made contact with John Winthrop to try to form an alliance to solidify the position of New Netherland in America. Now if you remember, these charters that were given to all of these different English settlements overlap with each other quite a bit. Now Virginia and Massachusetts, but up next to each other, uh, with Maryland actually in between them, and New Netherland fell within the territory set out in Winthrop's charter. Now this is disputed, given the fact of the language of these charters, stating that they should create a colony within these bounds, not that these bounds are where the colony has control. And it was during this time that the colonies in New England were actually largely left alone. So Stuyvesant actually thought it would be a good time to work with them directly instead of the full force of the English government. New England also needed Manhattan as a shipping hub, so Stuyvesant could use this to his advantage. He also looked to New Sweden to make his presence known, but largely left him alone. However, he did order the land between the colonies to be bought to prevent further encroachment. And further, he attempted to regain the trust of the natives that had been lost due to Keefe's actions. Looking inward again, Stuyvesant tried to rebuild the fort and find new homes for the refugees that still lived within its walls after Keefe's war. Despite his efforts to create a fair government, Stuyvesant was often short of his mark, and he continued to ignore the calls for democratic government. Vanderdonk actually created a new council called the Board of Nine to make this point clear. He wrote a petition calling for the Hague to seize control of the colony from the West India Company. And the return of Mellon and Kiter from Amsterdam in 1649 further pushed this to the forefront and gave Vanderdonk another chance to nation build. They had the documents that gave the Board of Nine full reign to create a government of their choice. Russell Shorto lays out this pretty momentous occasion when Mellon and Keiter get back to New Amsterdam. Quote, it took months, but Mellon and Keiter won a remarkable concession from the governing body, which now lay at the table, a mandamus, an order from the government of the Dutch Republic to the director-general of the colony of New Netherland. The members of the Board of Nine must have gasped as they read the document. In its tone and language it was an utter vindication of their position. It decried, Quote, this is quoting the document, the war that Director Keeft illegally and contrary to all public law had commenced against the Indians, end quote, and the atrocities, quote, which must startle the Christian heart that hears of them, end quote. It approved of the fact that popular representatives had been chosen to ensure that such calamities didn't happen again. It noted that Keeft, and after him Stuyvesant, had hampered these representatives. Stuyvesant's sentences against the two men were revoked, pending appeal, and Stuyvesant himself, or a representative, was to return to the home country to explain his conduct, end quote. Now this document that Keiter and Mellon were carrying incensed Stuyvesant, and when he read it, he was unwilling to budge. Furthermore, he called for a raid on Vanderdonk's estate and arrested him for high treason, though this was a bridge too far and his own counsel began to turn on him. In total, he felt embarrassed and as if his work was about to be completely undone, thus leaving the colony in ruin. And on top of this, Vanderdonk was unwilling to work with Stuyvesant at all. He saw Stuyvesant as a clever but foolhardy leader. He wanted to ensure the colony would endure the mounting threats that surrounded them, and he didn't think Stuyvesant was the man to do it. Now after being charged with treason, Vanderdonk was eventually set free, but Stuyvesant banned him from serving on the Board of Nine. Regardless, he was now a local hero and had momentum on his side. He would fight any way he could to reform this government. So, in order to take the fight to the head of the table, he went straight to The Hague. To prepare, he met with government allies to lay out what the government should look like and the shortcomings of the current administration. Vanderdot completed a full documented complaint called the Remonstrance of New Netherland, despite Stuyvesant banning these meetings. The Remonstrance is a 83-odd page document. It lays out basically the entire history of New Netherlands, starting in 1609 with the arrival of Henry Hudson that I spoke about. But the crux of the argument that Vanderdonk, Keiter, Mellon, and the rest of the so-called Board of Eight, which is the eight members of the Board of Nine, that worked on this. The one exception to the Board of Nine is, of course, Stuyvesant. I'm going to read a portion from the Remonstrance. Uh, as translated by E.B. O'Callaghan, he translated this from the original Dutch for Columbia University back in uh, 1856. So it's old, but it works for us here. Quote, In our opinion, this country will never flourish under the Honorable Company's government, on the contrary to waste and decay in itself unless the company be, in consequence, reformed. It would, therefore, be better and more advantageous for the country and themselves were they rid of it and the remnant of their property transported hence. To speak specifically, care ought to be taken of the public property, both ecclesiastical and civil, which in the beginning can illy be spared or dispensed with. It is doubtful, but divine worship must be entirely intermitted in consequence of the clergyman's departure and the company's inability." There ought to be a public school provided with at least two good teachers so that the youth in so wild a country where there are so many dissolute people may, first of all, be well instructed and indoctrinated not only in reading and writing, but also in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Now, the school is cut very irregularly by this one or that according to his fancy as long as he thinks proper. There ought to be likewise asylums for aged men, for orphans and similar institutions. The clergyman who now returns home could give fuller information on the subject. The country must be provided with moral, honorable, and intelligent rules who are not very indigent nor yet very covetous. A covetous ruler makes poor subjects, and the mode in which the country is now governed is a great affliction and not to be tolerated. For no one is unmolested nor secure in his property any longer than the director pleases, who is generally very prone to confiscation. And though men act fairly and give him his due, yet it is necessary still to continue to please him If one would have quietness. Good population should follow a good government, as we have demonstrated according to our ability in our petition. And although free passages and the fitting out of ships were such requisite would at first cause expense, yet when the result is considered, such an outlay would be immeasurably well employed, if farmers and laborers with other people in the straitened circumstances of whom fatherland has plenty to spare were by that means introduced with what little they may have into the country. We hope it would then prosper, especially had it what we consider to be the mother population good forty-nine privileges and exemption which could encourage the inhabitants, attract navigation and profitable trade, and with the pleasantness, convenience, salubrity, and productiveness of the country, allure every one hither. if a boundary were added in the protection to what has been already done, then with God's help, every one would in human probability go well, and New Netherland could be in a short time a brave place, able. Also, to be of service to the Netherlands State, to richly repay expended outlays, and to thank her benefactors. End quote. Now, this document clearly shows that Vanderdonck was using his influences—many of those influences he learned that he had in Leiden, along with his personal relationships—to make a very strong case to the Hague. Now, Vanderdonck took this document, accompanied with two other board members and made his way back to Amsterdam to fight this out to the end. Vanderdonk arrived in a bustling, prosperous Amsterdam, returning after decades back to his home. This already prosperous city was bolstered by the newfound peace with Spain, ending the Eighty Years' War, as well as the Thirty Years' War in 1648. The bustling city did not distract him, though. He was on a mission. He made an appearance in front of the states-general with his petition in hand, along with props, maps, and a vision, for the future of the colony. Unfortunately, a minor crisis with the Dutch royal family threatened the government, which led to this being halted. So, during this time, van der decided to publish the remonstrance to further his cause. Luckily, the printing business was booming at this point. See, in 1600, there were only four printers in Amsterdam, and by 1649, there were 39. And along with this, he printed a map of New Netherland, which actually was one of the most accurate maps to that point and for a very long time of the east coast of the United States. Now while Vanderdonk waited he also visited family and was able to actually convince them to move to America. But during this time Van Tienhoven was also working, and he was able to convince the government that the colony wasn't so bad after all. Luckily though, Vanderdonk's pamphlet was doing his work for him, along with his remonstrance. This had a greater effect than he had probably actually imagined. Hundreds of people flooded on ships to head to America, and hundreds more were even turned away due to the lack of ships. This interest actually brought even more increased interest from the government, and in the end, Vanderdonk triumphed, and a government would need to be formed in the colony. The company and Stuyvesant was no longer in control. Unfortunately, this would have to wait, as Oliver Cromwell was now setting his eyes on America after gaining control of the English government after the first English Civil War. He wanted to wrest control of Manhattan from the Dutch. The English Parliament passed the Navigation Acts, preventing trade between the English and the Dutch. Now this law stated basically that only English ships could dock in English ports, and only English ships could ship English goods. And this is a major example of the growing protectionism that it came with this colonial project. It also stated that all foreign ships that pass through the English Channel must lower their flags and salute, which got a lot of ships in trouble. And this would actually have a dramatic impact, as while Vanderdonk is in Amsterdam, the Dutch and the English start to trade blows in the English Channel, igniting the First Anglo Dutch War. Dutch ships were not quick to comply to this new rule, which would lead to Open warfare when a Dutch fleet commander, Martin Tromp, found himself in the sights of Robert Blake, the English commander. Unfortunately for the Dutch, prior to this, the English had been bolstering their navy tremendously, while the Dutch were trying to shrink theirs for fear of a coup within the government by Willem the Orange. These two fleets traded blows continuously for hours off the coast of Dover, and it, and it was a continuation of tensions that had been building for decades. The Dutch declared war in July of 1652, making this the first true trade war between the two nations. Though it was a bloody war, every battle was at sea, and no land was actually taken. Thus, this war was instrumental in rewriting the book on naval warfare as well as pushing naval technology to the forefront of empires that were looking to rapidly expand their territory. Eventually, peace was made in 1653, just as Oliver Cromwell was preparing to take New Amsterdam. But As luck would have it, his fleet was caught in a storm and arrived too late to Boston to attack New Amsterdam. Now Stuyvesant may have known about the fact that his government and the company was being undermined in Amsterdam, but there was no way to actually do anything about it. So he thwarted any plans for any Vanderdank allies to undermine his government at this point. He continued bolstering the city's administrative capacity and kept the enemies at the gates, namely the English, at bay. He worked with several people in New Haven and Connecticut and Massachusetts to ensure peace in the region. See, the English had been settling in Long Island, the northern part of Long Island, long before the First Anglo-Dutch War. And to prevent any further encroachment, Stuyvesant conceded this land, but set a new border through Long Island that separated the English and Dutch control. And even today, you can actually see the names of these towns, northern and southern Long Island, having Dutch or English names. But during the First Anglo-Dutch War, it seemed like the end was in sight, as the Long Island towns needed more protection and complained about their taxes not actually giving them protection that they needed. But like I said, before an attack on New Amsterdam came from the English, peace was signed. During the war, Vanderdonk also continued to work and continued to lay out a plan to facilitate this transition from the company to this new version of government. And eventually he actually had no competition to go against when Van Tienhoven decided to give up this fight and leave for a love affair. Thus, Vanderdonk was victorious and a letter was then sent to Stuyvesant. This letter is translated in The Island at the Center of the World, quote, To Petrus Stuyvesant, Director General in New Netherland, We have, in view of the public service, considered it necessary to require you, on sight hereof, to repair hither in order to furnish us circumstantial and pertinent information as to the true and actual condition of the country and affairs, also of the boundary line between the English and the Dutch there. Done 27th April, 1652. So in the end, van der won, but the war that was raging between the English and the Dutch changed everything. The Dutch West India Company saw a resurgence at this time, and as they were tasked with protecting their own trade from the English fleet, they were granted much more power. And eventually the government rescinded all of these orders that had previously been made regarding New Netherland. In order to keep the peace and make sure that there's stability in the colony, Despite this win, van der Dank was banned from public service and practicing law in New Netherland. He was allowed to return, but he was only allowed to return to his estate and work there. And he did return to his estate, though he did not stay out of politics. He's never mentioned again in the public record, but he definitely worked in the background. You can tell because of the writing that was taking place. After the peace with England, New Amsterdam became a sort of boom town. The increasing population from all of those people that were influenced by van der Donk led to many intermingling populations arriving in New Amsterdam, which did not sit well with Stuyvesant. He was faced with a growing number of religious groups seeking a spot in the city and felt that it was necessary to crack down. He attempted to stop Jews from buying land, but this was quickly ridiculed by his superiors in the company. The Quakers pushed him to his limit, and he attempted to even force them to comply to more civilized practices. He was again rebuffed and forced to be completely tolerant of all religions. While the internal matters got the best of Stuyvesant, he was able to use this time of peace with his northern neighbors to turn his attention to the south and attack New Sweden. Now, this colony had been slowly growing over the years, but was still quite sparse, but was kind of a thorn in the side of New Amsterdam. Stuyvesant surrounded the fort, and due to the overwhelming numbers, the commander of the fort was forced to surrender. During negotiations, it is reported that when the Swedish negotiator left, he left with a prophetic statement, quote, Today it's me, tomorrow it will be you. This takeover had major ramifications, though. The Indians that had been trading with New Sweden saw their relationships crumble at the hands of New Netherland, so they decided to retaliate and attack New Amsterdam while he was on his way back from New Sweden, and this starts what is now called the Peach War. Over 600 Mohicans, Susquehannock, and other unlikely Indian allies attacked the city of New Amsterdam on the 15th of September, 1655. This assault only lasted a few weeks, but it would have lasting ramifications, and it is likely that Vanderdonk was one of the casualties. The short assault had left the city reeling, and repairs would take months if not years to fully complete. The hardship continued when John Winthrop Jr. received a charter for Connecticut, completely encompassing all of New Netherland. Winthrop moved quickly, and Dutch towns were swallowed up in rapid succession. This move by Winthrop was one prong of a two-pronged attack, with the other prong being led by George Downing. George Downing was one of the nine graduates in the first graduating class of Harvard. He was the cousin of Winthrop Jr. and the nephew of Winthrop Sr. and fought with the parliamentarians during the First English Civil War. He was the ambassador to the Hague, so he was used to attempt to take New Netherland from England peacefully. He appealed to the States general to make a deal for a peaceful transfer, but this was a ruse and shortly thereafter went to the king with an appeal to attack every Dutch holding, and saw an opportunity for the English to break the grip that the Netherlands had in several different areas in the world. Downing arrived in New Netherland with a whole naval force, but he lied to Stuyvesant, telling him that it was merely for enforcement purposes in the English colonies. Stuyvesant bought it, so he left to deal with some trouble that was happening at Fort Orange after a Mohawk attack. It was there that he heard word of the assault on New Amsterdam. Thus began the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Syvesant returned to New Amsterdam in time to see the English gunboats in the harbor and the English soldiers coming from the nearby English settlements. He would not surrender easily, though he had an army half the size of the English, without even mentioning the ships. Several attempts were made and generous offers were sent To no avail. By this point, Stuyvesant really didn't have any control over the people. They saw him merely as an agent of the West India Company and nothing else. Now, Stuyvesant didn't know that this opposition was bubbling under his nose and continued to refuse the English calls for peace. Eventually, the decision was made for Stuyvesant by 93 members of the community. He relented to the very end, but was eventually led from the ramparts and met with the English at his farm. In this meeting, the Articles of Capitulation were signed, giving control of New Netherland to the English. The English soldiers came into the fort, raised their flag in the now empty fort, and the city was renamed. New Amsterdam would now be named New York City, after the Duke of York. The Articles of Capitulation included Dutch ideals like freedom of consciousness, free trade and free movement. Those in the government at the time were allowed to stay as long as they gave an oath to King Charles. It is possible that Stuyvesant, despite his reluctance to enact these ideals on his own, was actually pushing for them. Now, Stuyvesant was then called back to Amsterdam to face charges for neglect during the surrender, and he was not allowed to return back to Manhattan, which had, for him, much like Vanderdonk, become his true home. Eventually, he was allowed back, and hailed as the general for the rest of his life. And he died in New York City in 1672. Now this takeover of New Netherland, now New York, did not end the experiment that had been run the entire time in this city. The remnants of the tolerant and pioneering society stuck around, despite the strict theocracy of the surrounding Puritan colonies. Like I said, the government stayed in place, and the people that lived there remained, and lived just as they had before. The Second Anglo-Dutch War was not the last, and about five years later, the Third Anglo-Dutch War broke out. New York was captured by the Dutch and renamed to New Orange, though in a peace deal, the land was given back to England. This was the last assault in the New World between these two powers, though it was not the last in the old. The Netherlands would eventually take over, at least in essence, when William of Orange and his wife Mary took over the English crown in 1688, though that will be covered in more detail later on in this podcast. In his book, The Island at the Center of the World, Russell Shorto kind of gives a preview, a bit of a preview of the growing idea that is percolating here in New York. Maybe the main result of this remarkable span, in which the island and the surrounding colony changed hand five times in three decades, was that it forced the inhabitants to solidify their identity. Which European power held ultimate control became less important to the Manhattanites than the relationships between their own ethnic communities and their ties to traders, shippers, and families in other parts of the world? What mattered was the cash of rights, which they noisily insisted be honored by whoever had just won control of the place and which enabled the separate minority communities to flourish. So Adrian van der Donk's dream became real, in a way he had never imagined. The structure he helped win for the place grounded in Dutch tolerance and diversity, just as he hoped it would, which in turn touched off the island's rapid growth and increased the influx of settlers from around Europe, just as he predicted. What he didn't predict was that the English would appreciate this fact, and maintain the structure, and that it would support a future culture of unprecedented energy, and vitality, and creativity. End quote. So that's the story of New Netherland. And the end of the road for the Dutch and the Swedish attempts to colonize the New World. Now there's a reason that the English are a big piece of the story, especially as we get closer to the Revolution. But in this episode and the next, I hope that we start to see some of those influences from other places. Like the Dutch, the French, the Spanish, and even the Swedish. They brought us log cabins. It's not just the English that made America, America. And we see that today, that America is America because Americans are Americans. It's circular, it's tautological, but it makes sense. America is not necessarily a people, a singular people. America is based on ideas, and it's those ideas that make this country so beautiful.